Adolf Hitler mounted the rostrum in the Reichstag and delivered an 88-minute address that cataloged the sins of President Franklin Roosevelt, an unsophisticated warmonger who was mentally unsound, and praised the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor of four days earlier as an act of deliverance that all of us, the German people, and I believe all other decent people around the world as well, regard with deep appreciation. The Fuhrer took note of the insulting attacks and rude statements by this so-called president against me personally, making particular mention of FDR's barb that he was a gangster. This term did not originate in Europe, where such characters are uncommon, but in America, he said to the delight of the deputies, assorted Nazi dignitaries, and honored Japanese guests. But the loudest cheers came when Hitler made clear that the purpose of his speech was to declare war on the United States his voice suddenly drowned out by raucous applause that escalated into a standing ovation. Late in the evening on the following day, Brooklyn time, a jury of nine men and three women filed into a packed courtroom in the old federal building on Washington Street. At a few minutes before midnight, the jury's foreman, Edward A. Logan, stood before the hushed assemblage and read guilty verdicts against the 14 out of 33 Nazi spies who hadn't already confessed to their membership in what was known as the Duquesne spy ring, still to this day the largest espionage case in American history. The proceeding was unmarred by any disruption. The defendants took the verdict stoically, for the most part, wrote the Times. Judge Mortimer W. Byers then thanked Logan and his fellow jurors for their service. It will readily appear, he said, that you have rendered a very substantial contribution to the welfare of the country which you and I hold very dear. And so they had. This, the first U.S. victory of World War II, would have been impossible without one man whose contribution to the war effort has never been recognized, William G. Sebald. In a culture that has come to celebrate even the most tangential representation of the greatest generation, his identity has remained mysterious, his picture never published. By 1951, Siebold had lapsed into an obscurity which has been protected ever since by the FBI, according to a magazine that used a pseudonym to describe him. All we know is that somewhere in the U.S. today is a tall, gaunt, middle-aged man to whom each native-born American can weld off his hat in love and respect, neglecting to mention that the non-native-born citizen owed him a debt of gratitude, too. When Siebold died in February 1970, no obituary or death notice appeared in the newspapers. A pivotal figure in America's confrontation with Nazism had been forgotten. In the years before the formal commencement of hostilities, Hitler's agents were active in New York. They were a collection of ideologues, opportunists, dupes, adventurers, thugs, sophisticates, posers, patriots, seductresses, lackeys, and sympathizers. Most, but not all, were German immigrants who would come to be associated in the public mind, not always unfairly, with a single neighborhood of Upper Manhattan, the home base of a nationwide movement of uniform-wearing Nazis whose rallies and marches were a constant source of media fascination. Dwelling within this community of the like-minded were a handful of individuals with the genuine talent to provide meaningful assistance to the German war machine. Few today realize that a Bavarian-born immigrant living in Queens, Herman W. Lang, succeeded in stealing the plans for America's greatest pre-war secret, a precious instrument of mythic reputation designed to turn modern airplanes into bomb-dropping systems of unprecedented accuracy, a brazen act of thievery that represents the most significant intelligence coup of the Third Reich.
The spies of the 30s were initially able to conduct their work without worry of detection because the U.S. government, focused on remedying economic misery in a period of rigid isolationism, hadn't assigned any agency to root them out. The story among the Soviet agents was that you could walk down Broadway wearing a sign identifying yourself as a spy and still not get caught. It took a botch investigation into a portion of the Nazi network in New York by an unprepared FBI to convince President Roosevelt that J. Edgar Hoover should be empowered to become the nation's first modern spymaster. Already a national celebrity for directing his G-Men in a Tommy Gunn-assisted crusade against the John Dillingers and Pretty Boy Floyds of the early Depression, Hoover was given the authority to launch covert investigations against those who reflect in their pernicious activities the desires of enemy modes of thought and action, as he said in a speech on October 24, 1939, less than two months after Nazi Germany's invasion of Poland marked the beginning of the war in Europe. But Hoover's FBI couldn't rectify the failure to capture the most destructive Nazi agents in New York and prove that it had the ability...